Would you turn with me to Esther chapter 1? Esther chapter 1. It's before the book of Psalms. A few books before the book of Psalms. Esther chapter 1. One time, my dad parked the car in our driveway and went into the house to get something. The car was running. I was three years old, and I'm told that I decided to put the van in gear. I moved it into neutral somehow, and we began coasting down the driveway. And my seven-year-old brother uh, quickly came to the rescue. He got in the driver's seat to try to stop the car, but he was unsuccessful. And the van crossed the street and stopped when it hit the curb on the other side of the street. My dad came running out, and the first witness to the crime were his own eyes. He saw my brother in the driver's seat, and uh, my brother got the spanking of a lifetime. And if I would have been old enough, I probably would have liked to see that. (laughs) Even though he did nothing but try to to rescue us. So... um, the first witness, I say, to the, the act was my dad's eyes, but that wasn't actually the final, that, that didn't uh, tell what, what actually happened. If he would have listened to my brother explain what had happened, took both sides of it, he would have seen uh, what actually happened. And I mentioned this verse on Wednesday, but I'll mention it again the, from Proverbs chapter 18. It says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes along and examines him. This is a principle of wisdom that that Solomon writes for us in the book of Proverbs, that whoever is the first to state his case is the one that usually seems right. If you don't hear both sides of the story, you think that that person is right. Now, what what Proverbs is not saying, what Solomon is not saying, is that the first to state his case is always wrong. That's not always the case either. Someone could come and state their case first and still be right. That's not his point. But he says the first one to state it seems right to the person who is listening. And I think many of us have heard a case for the spiritual uh, well-being and goodness of, of the book of Esther, of the characters in Esther that she was a godly woman, that she was a woman of grace. I just heard uh, earlier this week that she was a you know, godly woman that, we, that, that women ought to emulate. But I'm going to show you over the next several months as we examine this book that the first to, to state his case usually seems right, but then someone else comes along to examine it. Um, here's the version that you have probably been taught about Esther. This is the version I had been taught. Mordecai was a godly man. He cared deeply about the things of God. And so he worked to uh, make sure that the people of God were being protected. Esther was a godly woman. She wanted to save God's people. So with great faith, firmly planted in God... She and Mordecai attempted great things for God. And they used godly means to do it. And as a result of their unwavering faith in God, their unmatched purity, their their spiritual courage, many Jews were saved. Does that sound familiar? And the reason the story has been taught in this way 
is because if we don't spiritualize the characters in the book of Esther, it's hard to find any redeeming value in the book at all. As you probably know, the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. The only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. Not once. Not the name God, Lord, Sovereign. And further, there's no mention of worship, no mention of prayer, there's no mention of sacrifice. And if you took the, the word or the name Jews and replaced it with some other ethnic group, be hard to find any spiritual value at all in the entire book. You know, we can give it some spiritual value because you say, well, these are the people of God, so God's protecting these, these chosen people. And so some scholars have worked hard to try to, to find some spiritual value in the book of Esther. And so they look into acrostics, they go into the Hebrew language and try to find the name Yahweh. In, in, in some of the, the beginnings of, the letter, of, of each of the verses and so on. And people have gone through all sorts of um, exegetical gymnastics in order to, to find these things. Other scholars have flat out rejected the book of Esther as biblical, like Martin Luther, believe it or not. He said that he didn't accept the book of Esther because it has no gospel content at all. He couldn't, he couldn't reconcile with that. Others have uh, tried to spiritualize it by adding things to it. Maybe we, we're missing some details here. So, for example, if you look at the very end of the book, Esther chapter 10, just before you get to the book of Job, notice it ends with chapter 10, verse 3. There has been a whole edition that's been added from chapter 10, verse 4, all the way to chapter 16 in order to fill in the gaps. And, and you'll never guess what kind of material is in there. There are 70 mentions of the name God. There is mention of Esther's prayer and Mordecai's prayer and these great valiant things that happen. What they do is they, they talk about a, a, a dream that takes place and, and then they talk about... Uh, all these events that we're going to read in the actual book of Esther, they talk about all these things and they say, this is what they're really thinking. This is what they're really trying to do. The additions to Esther. It's part of the Apocrypha. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's part of the Catholic Bible. And so the first to plead his case usually seems right. But I'm going to su suggest to you that we need to take the Scripture at its word, not try to force what we want it to say on the text, but draw out from the text what God is trying to tell us, what God is teaching us. And when we do, we're going to come up with a very different story than what we've been taught. Now, how can there be any value to a book like this? If there's no mention of God, no mention of worship, prayer, sacrifice, how can there be any spiritual value? But don't, don't be alarmed or afraid that there is no spiritual value because Romans 15.4 says this, Everything that was written in the past was written for our learning. It was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
So that's what we know about Esther. We may not see any clear spiritual value. I'm going to show you that there is spiritual value, but not the way we had learned it from the time that we were young. There is spiritual value, but but because Romans 15.4 says it's there for our learning to help us to hope in God. One scholar uh, by the name of Wright suggests that the Christian judgment of the book of Esther has been unnecessarily cramped through our feeling that because Mordecai and Esther are biblical characters, then they must be good, godly people. Yet, just because they're in the Bible doesn't make them godly. Right? Can you think of characters in the Bible who are described, their events, the events of their lives are described, but they're not godly people? Like Samson and Jehu, right? And, uh, and Ahab and so on. The Bible makes no moral judgment on some of these people, but it expects us to use our Christian sense, to use uh, 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 discernment that these men and others are raised up by God, but some of them are not necessarily godly. The Scripture is profitable. As we saw in Sunday school this morning, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Scripture is profitable. Well, that doesn't mean that all Scripture is to be emulated. Now think about that for a second. Say, wait a second, I, I thought I was supposed to emulate Scripture. I'm supposed to follow Scripture. But, but there are often acts of immoral behavior that are listed in the Scripture without a, a denunciation of them. Like polygamy. Like immoral behavior of Abraham passing... Uh, his wife off as his sister, okay? Or Lot living among wicked people, or David committing adultery with Bathsheba, or Rahab's harlotry. These are all wicked acts, but the scriptures don't say yay or nay to them directly in those stories. We have to look at the rest of scripture and say, what does God really think about the marriage between a man and a woman? Should it be one man for one woman for one lifetime? Or can you add on as many as you want? And we have to make an evaluation. And that's what I'm telling you we have to do to the book of Esther. Don't try to spiritualize it. Make it say what we want to say. But rather, we must see what the rest of Scripture says and see what the value of it is for us, why God put it there. And you may be thinking, wait a second. You, you skipped the part of the story of Esther where Mordecai says, and we're going to see this in a few weeks, if you don't do this, if you don't go before the king and ask for his permission, then deliverance will arise from another place. And then you remember Esther's response is after she reflects on it, she says, I'm going to do this. And if I perish, what? I perish. Okay, and so what about that? That seems like a godly act of courage. I'm going to argue when we get to that passage that, that Mordecai and Esther are not doing that for the sake of God, but for the sake of their own nation and probably more accurately the sake of their own skin. Now, what you're going to find is in most biblical stories there is a human hero or heroine. Someone who we can look to and we can emulate them, but and so what commentators have done, lots of people who have taught through this book have done, they've argued that Esther is the heroine or Mordecai is the hero. But I'm not going to argue for any human heroes in this book. 
Now, I can't un- unpack all the reasons why today, but what I, what I intend to do is as we go through this book, I will show you. Okay, so what I want you to do is to, to, to be in this series with me for the long haul. Okay, there are ten chapters. I think there's going to be nine sermons. And so uh, try to commit yourself. You have a schedule that, that's been given out for when these will be preached and try to be here for each one as we try to unpack this. Let me give you some history of the book and then we'll look at chapter 1 this morning. The people of Israel have been in exile. They had been taken away from Jerusalem by the world power Babylon and under the power of great king Nebuchadnezzar. And in the book of Daniel, remember, we see them in exile under his rule. But Babylon doesn't stay as a world empire forever. They are destroyed or they are brought down and then you remember who takes their place. In the book of Daniel as well, it is the Medo-Persians. right? The Medes and the Persians. And so this story here in the book of Esther is set in the capital of Persia, in the city of Susa. Look at verse 1. You see that it's in the, the reign or during the reign of Ahasuerus. Okay, we'll talk about him quite a bit. He's the, one of the main characters in this story. So the Jews are in captivity under the Medes and the Persians. And they are far away from home, far away from the promised land. And there is a great threat to their extinction that they will be wiped off the face of the earth. And the events of Esther take place before before Ezra leads them back to Jerusalem. There's going to be two more. Ezra, there's already one uh, time when they, he tried to lead people back, or Nehemiah tried to lead people back to Israel. This, Ezra will, in chapter 7 through 10 of Ezra, he, try, he leads them back again to rebuild the temple and so on. And then there will be a third time. Okay, So this happens between the first and the second time of, of these men leading back uh, the Jews back to Jerusalem. So we have the chosen nation of God outside the land of promise and they seem to be, as I'll argue, very unconcerned about God's theocratic program. Not concerned at all with what God is doing in the world and through their people, but concerned about themselves primarily. This morning we want to give our attention to the setting that's going to be played out. In fact, we're not going to be introduced to Esther or Mordecai today. Uh, in in the text itself, so so this this provides the setting for what God is going to do in the rest of the book. Okay, so let's read chapter one, and then we'll uh, try to understand what God has for us this morning. Chapter one, verse one, Esther. This is the word of God. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet, banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least. 
in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of, hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ab. Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Memukin, seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husband by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia, Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. We don't have a whole lot of um, theological action going on, but this is going to set the stage for God's future deliverance of His people. And so in chapter 1, we're going to see that life under this king is very volatile. He's a, he's a very taxing type of man with regard to his personality. His name listed in this book is King Ahasuerus, but perhaps you have another translation that lists him as someone else. Does anyone else see him as a different name? Xerxes, Xerxes right? What, what translation do you have? King James. King James, okay. So, the, so King Xerxes, and this is the same man, just another name for him as 
Many of the people back in those times would have multiple names by which they were known. And and so I'll probably refer to him king, as King Xerxes primarily. King Xerxes the first. He's a powerful and influential man as we see in verses 1 through 8. Notice how this begins. Now it took place. Or as other translations say, this is what happened. This is not a parable. This is not a story that, that, that someone made up. This is actual events that took place. And when did it took, take place? It says in verse 1, in the days of Ahasuerus, in the days of Xerxes. Xerxes I was the son of Darius, king of, of Persia. What do we know about Darius from the book of Daniel? Do you remember him? He was the one who was tricked into making a law against praying to any god at all. Remember, Daniel disobeyed that law by praying to the God of creation. And he did it three times, and Darius realized what a mistake he had made. But because it had already been put into law, these people are so serious about their law that it cannot be repealed. That's the nature of the laws of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be repealed. And so Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den, just as the law had said. You remember Darius couldn't sleep. He wanted to know what happened to Daniel. And he got up early in the morning and went down there. Of course, Daniel was, <coughs> was alive. <coughs> so, that, this is, so Darius is the father of the king that we're talking about here. Xerxes, Ahasuerus. And, uh, and he's a part of this Persian empire that, that rules the world. Xerxes is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11 in a prophecy that talks about um, the, these rich kings of Persia. He's listed as the fourth and the richest of those kings. And he would uh, arouse his whole empire against Greece and try to destroy them. Notice in verse, um, verse 3, we know the exact year in which these events take place. In the third year of his reign, in the third year of Xerxes' reign, which is 483 B.C. Uh, because it was the, the third year there. Notice what he does in verse 3. He gives a banquet. And you're going to see these throughout the book. He gives lots of banquets. He likes to have banquets. And uh, so the first banquet is given here in verses 3 and 4. And notice how long it lasts. At the end of verse 4, six months. You ever been to a banquet that lasted that long? I uh, can't imagine the, the food and and, uh, and things that were going on during this banquet. Six-month feast. It's probably more like a, a drinking party than, than anything as they made plans to go into battle because uh, notice who takes part in this banquet. It is in verse 3, the army officers, all the princes and attendants of the land. So apparently he's... he's uh, gathering support and and talking about strategy as they go into battle against Greece. They're, they would have a battle in 482 to 479, a three-year battle called the Battle of Thermopylae. And during this battle, thousands of Persians were going to be killed. And when they come back from this battle, which will take place in this book of Esther, you'll never guess what they do, but have a banquet. Try to, to settle the problems, I guess, or or maybe... Uh, drink away their woes. So you have a six-month banquet, and that leads up to verse 5 in chapter 1, a seven-day banquet, which is probably the culmination of this six-month banquet. Um, and uh, 
And notice the wealth that was involved in this banquet in verses 6 and 7. You had these hangings of fine white and, and all these, these uh, golden vessels, verse 7, and royal wine. The best of the best is used to, to uh, accommodate these, these army officers. And to show how inebriated these men were, the text says in verse 8 that they were under no compulsion as far as how much they could drink. Notice verse 8. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official and his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Normally what would happen is the king would determine how much wine was rationed out, was given out to the men. But here... According to verse 8, they're given as much as they want. Whatever they determine they want, they can have. And at the height of their drunkenness, verse 10, right? we have the culmination of this six-month drinking party. Notice what happens in verses uh, 11 and 12. Queen Vashti is supposed to come before the king. Apparently, in verse 9, Queen Vashti and the other ladies had their own banquet. They had a banquet for the women. And uh, as the men are preparing for battle, the women are enjoying one another's company with a separate feast. Notice what Xerxes does in verses 10 and 11. He commands his seven eunuchs to go get Queen Vashti. Verse 11, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Alright? So it seems pretty harmless, right? But notice the purpose in verse 11. Bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Why? In order to display her beauty. Now, without getting too graphic, what do you imagine that men who have been drunk for six months would take pleasure in seeing? Her latest bejeweled dress? Apparently, Xerxes is provoking his wife to show off all of her beauty to the men there so that she would come in wearing nothing but a crown. But notice what she does. She refuses, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. The text doesn't tell us why she refused, but it was likely because she knew exactly what was going on. She knew exactly what she wanted, what her husband wanted her to do. And so she refused. And you can imagine the fury of the king. Look at the end of verse 12. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. How could my wife disgrace me? Does she know who I am? I am the king. Everybody does what I say. Especially my wife. And so the remainder of the chapter is given to the king and his officials deciding what they ought to do to this, uh, to this wife who is non-submissive to him. And so, verses 13 and 22, we have the resolution to the problem. The problem is that Vashti refused to come before him. So the king and the seven princes come together in verses 13 through 20. They deliberate, and then in verses 21 and 22, they issue a decree. 
The king summons the wisest men and the, the best lawyers, the, the men who know the law the best because they had to be good in legal matters because they were going to put into place a, a law that could not be repealed. Now it seems strange that a king would have to look to legal ways as how to hand, how he could handle his wife, but apparently, from what I understand, the law protected the queen in some way. And as you're going to see, the law becomes very important in the land of the Medes and the Persians, just like it was with Daniel. That it cannot be repealed. The king can't just say, you know what, I don't like that law, let's get rid of that. And, and I think that's an important uh, footnote that we need to think about now because there's going to be a law that's put into place to kill the Jews. And we're going to see how God repeals that really in a different way. So the king asks, what should I do about this defiant wife of mine? One of the officials responds. His name is Memukin. He apparently knows the law, the, the law pretty well. And he says, here's why it's wrong. Not only has she disgraced you, O great king, but she's disgraced all men and she's actually caused harm to all men. Why? Because now all the ladies are going to think that it's okay to disgrace their husband or to, to reject them, to be defiant against their husband. The whole land. Notice in verses 16 through 18 how he uses the word all so many times. Uh, in the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples and, who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women causing them to look with contempt on their husbands. I think that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, perhaps. Okay, that this is really going to affect every single person. But, but again, they, they were concerned about honor. These men were concerned about honor and making sure that their wives properly followed them and respected them and, and obeyed them. So he makes a proposal, Mimucan does, in verse 19. He says, I think we ought to make a law that cannot be repealed. Notice, if it pleases the king, verse 19, let a royal edict or a law be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed. And further, he says in verse 19 that Queen Vashti ought to lose her position. She ought not to be the queen any longer. And we should, what we should do is we should make a search for another one who's more worthy than she. Now, I said that these laws that cannot be repealed become very important. You remember seeing this in, in the book of Daniel when this, prayer, this, uh, this law was made against praying to any god, including the god of the universe. Uh, Darius didn't think through it very carefully and he agrees to it and the law is put in place and it cannot be repealed. And this is going to be important later on in the story. And so what Mamukin thinks is that this is going to bring honor back to the home. Look at verse 20. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. They'll be forced to. You know, they're not going to see men as some passive, uh, passive leaders that can just be treated like a doormat as King Xerxes was. But they're going to be those who can be respected, and so it's it's uh, there's a little bit of irony here that the king would actually make a law that announces 
his embarrassing episode with his wife, but at the same time, he does it in order to try to save face, to try to make a, a, a spectacle out of Queen Vashti. And so he agrees to it in verse 21, and then he sends a letter to all the provinces to have it be read and that the men would be the leaders in their household and that their their home language would be the, the language that's spoken at home. So if a man married a foreign woman, not, not her language, but, but his language. So, so far we have not been introduced to Mordecai or Esther, but what I suggested at the beginning is that they will not be the heroes of the story. In fact, there is no human heroes. You're not going to find one in, in, Queen, in King Xerxes or Queen Vashti or anything. You're not going to find a human hero at all. I'm going to argue that in this book, God will accomplish His purposes even when His chosen people have forgotten Him. God accomplishes His purposes even when His people have forgotten Him. And as we study this book, I hope that you will see that it is God who is still at work. Even when there are no fireworks, no spectacular displays of God's power, there's no parting of the Red Sea here. There's no raising of someone from the dead. What I want you to see in this book is that God is still alive and He's still working even when we don't see His hand as clearly. Because God works often through ordinary means, especially in our day. He works through ordinary means. One commentator puts it this way, God is most omnipotently present even where He is most conspicuously absent. Isn't that a great description of the book of Esther? Because that is, that is a great way to describe the book of Esther. He is conspicuously absent. Where are you, God? I can't find you in here. But what we're going to see is that God is most omnipotently present where He is most conspicuously absent. And as you look through this book, you're not going to find a mention of God you're not going to have to, uh, it's not going to be helpful to try to read through the lines and try to, to pull out some sort of uh, decoding type of situation. But even when God is most seemingly absent, He is powerfully working. And that should give us hope for today. That although there are no supernatural works going on from God, God's not striking evil people dead on the spot. He's not performing great acts of deliverance. But even though He's not, we can still be sure that He is present, that He is there, and that He is just as concerned and just as serious as He ever was about His promise to His people, to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles who are benefiting from the promises given to them. I hope you will recognize that our God, as the psalmist says in 121.4, He keeps Israel, but He never sleeps and never slumbers. He's always working. Now Satan may think he, may, he has an upper hand and that he is winning and that, that God's purposes are failing and, and that... Satan is winning because he's getting his, his various rulers into place where he wants them. 
the Scriptures teach us that God's purposes will stand, that no one can thwart God's purposes. And isn't that what happened with Jesus? Right before He left the earth, He talked to His disciples and He said, do all these things for Me. Make disciples in My name. And then what does He do? He leaves. He says, I'm going to be with you throughout this whole thing. But then He leaves. And here, here's the great hope for us. Okay? It may seem in life like God is not there. Like God is far away. Like He doesn't care. But the truth of the Scripture is that He is there. And Christ is with us because He said He would be all the way till the end of the age. And the way that He is with us is through His Holy Spirit. So we can count on a God who is there. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom and grace as we work through this, this uh, difficult book. Certainly there have been many people who have sought to, to give a proper explanation of it and, and uh, I certainly am seeking to do the same thing. And the, many of these people are well-meaning people. And uh, Lord, help us to be humble as we come before Your Word and to allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves. Help us to, uh, to interpret Scripture with Scripture because there are not, uh, there's not any clear indication of what is going on in the book of Esther. And so we do have to use the rest of Scripture to see what You are doing. Give us wisdom as we try to correlate these truths. But give us a childlike faith as well as we go through it. That we don't come with our preconceived ideas and try to pull out, uh, try to force onto the Scripture what we think it should say, but rather draw out from it what You want us to know. Help us as we do this, we pray. May, may we understand more about Your glory and Your greatness and love You more because of how we see You work even when You are seemingly absent. Thank You that You have promised always to be with us, that You will never leave us and never forsake us. We count on that promise. And we pray that that would be true for the remainder of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.